If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Acts 15, verses 1-19. through 19. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them from, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in Acts. We are going through the book of Acts. We're in, we're in Acts 15. And uh, for those who are new to us, where, we, where this has been, the Acts is the retelling of how the church happened and how the church, the church got started, not by, not by organizing or having a building. Or that's not what it's centered around. It's centered around a mission to be a witness of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we, they had this call to be a witness, and Jesus said, by my power, you will be my witnesses. And they took that very, very seriously. And within a couple of months, thousands of people joined up. But it was all, at that time anyway, it was all Jewish people who all had the same customs, who dressed the same, parented, parented the same, ate the same food. I mean, it was all the same. And up until chapter 8, this, it really hadn't pushed out into other cultures. And in chapter 8, this guy named Philip preaches the gospel in a place called Samaria. So now Samaritans are involved. And he goes over and preaches the gospel to uh, this Ethiopian. And so now the gospel is breaking out into Africa. And then Peter gets a vision of some bacon. And now Gentiles are starting to come in. And then last week, it really started to break loose because in this church in Antioch, which was not the base where it started in Jerusalem, but it was, in, it was out into more into Greek culture, uh, this church sent out their two key leaders in Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out to go preach the gospel into the Roman Empire. Now, there's all kinds of people coming in, but this invited some problems and some controversy that is the main topic of our discussion today. And I think it's a real topic 
uh, for you and I, because maybe some of you've experienced this controversy growing up. It may be the reason why your parents stopped going to church or why you stopped going to church. The controversy is why people believe in God. They want to connect with God, but they don't think they can find that God in the Bible. And here's the controversy. Who should be a part of the church? Who's in, who's out? How good do you have to be? How holy do you have to be? What rules do you need to follow? How much of your lifestyle needs to change? Get cleaned up before you are accepted in the church. And this controversy makes sense if you understand the progression of Christianity to this point. So I don't want anybody to get on their high horse and looking down on anyone. Because if you understand the progression here, it started as a bunch of Jewish people who were raised to follow the Ten Commandments plus another 613 laws and regulations that helped them follow the Ten Commandments to make them holy. So they believe that Christianity was an extension of Judaism. After all, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, and Jesus himself said, I've not come to abolish these laws, the 10 plus the 613. I've come to fulfill them. And so it's only natural that they thought this way. Before you can be a part of the Jesus Club, you need to be a part of the Moses Club. But as the gospel breaks across, breaks loose all throughout the Roman Empire, um, it goes into the Gentile world, and, and people have different customs, different ways of parenting, voting, and all that kind of stuff. They become in the church. And Jewish people with good intentions, these are good, these, they had good intentions, were coming alongside them and saying, believing in Jesus is a good start, but there's some other rules that you have to follow. In fact, 623. And the Gentiles push back on this and say, wait a minute, Paul told us, the, the one who initially told them the gospel, Paul told us about a freedom in Christ that was apart from the law. And so this controversy started because those inside of the church were demanding that those outside of the church change and adjust their behavior to fit the customs and culture that they were familiar with, and thereby excluding some, not based on the gospel, but based upon how they were raised to be. And there was a time in my life where I would look at the church and I felt this way. I looked at my life. I'm like, man, I don't think my life fits with what I see in the church. And even if I wanted to be a part of the church, I don't think they wanted me to be a part. So I kind of understand that. So that's one side. One side is you, you have this, 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 you've got people adding um, to the gospel. But you kind of, the flip side of this, you kind of understand it because the gospel, there's some gospel imperatives. I mean, there are some things that the gospel demand that does change. Like in my little, you know, speech I had earlier, I, you know, the gospel demands that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. The gospel demands that we um, uh, love the sojourner, that we, uh, that we risk our lives to help other people, that we think of others more than we think of ourselves. It, it, it demands that we don't lie, that we don't cheat, that we don't murder, that we don't hate, that there's not racism, there's not God. So there's these demands. And so you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm kind of like all turned upside down because I see, I hear, I know, I hear about grace and the grace of Jesus, but I'm, I'm also hearing the, the truth of Jesus. And in a human in our human effort, if we see these as ideas to pursue, you can never pursue the same. You can never pursue both of them at the same time. But there is someone that where you find where grace and truth meet, and that is in the person of Jesus. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four stories, four accounts are called the Gospels of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is John. And when he says, when I look at, when I remember the life of Jesus and I look back on his life, here's what I remember about Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. It, he wasn't the balance of grace and truth because you and I, we like balance. In the church, we like balance. If we got, hey, there's some grace going on in the church, we've got to balance that out with some truth. Or you got truth, we need to balance that out with some grace. No, he never, he didn't, he's like, I didn't see a lot of balance in Jesus. He was in balance. Everything that he did, everything that he said was fully gracious and it was full of truth. And so, I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get to the punchline now and to the end of the story now is that 
the way that we live this out isn't by we try to be people of the truth or people of grace in and of ourselves, because if we do that, we'll, we'll, we'll miss. But what we have to do, we have to pursue the life of Jesus. We have to pursue the person of Jesus, and we need to allow his life to live through us. And if we do that, we can live out this paradox. It is a paradox. Those ideas don't go together. Well, we can be people of, of 100% grace and 100% truth as we live that as we live these lives out. So what is the controversy specifically? I've been hinting at it. What is it? Well, we're going to go through this again in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, just leave those open. I'd love to, to walk that through with you. I, know, I noticed when Dylan said to get out your communication card, very few of you did, which I was really disappointed in that. But maybe, maybe you'd get out your Bible. Maybe you'd at least do that. Just reach down, grab out your Bible or your phone. We'll go through this verse 1. Verse 1, it says this. It says, but some men came down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're saying, unless you have a certain kind of surgery, you can't be saved. You have to be a part of the Moses club before you can be a part of the Jesus club, which the Gentile men were like, oh, you know, hold on a second. Like, you know, you know, we didn't hear about this. And so if you've ever wondered why, why is the church so full of women and children? Well, this is where it started. There's guys, guys outside new members class in their chariot. And they're like, hey, honey, why don't you go in and just give me the notes? And, and so that's where that's all started. And uh, now the Jews, again, that, who genuinely loved Jesus, these were Christians. These are people who confessed their sin and trusted in Jesus. These were not people who had ill intent. These aren't the bad guys. They genuinely loved Jesus. They genuinely had a relationship with Jesus. They really believed this. They really believed that this is the way that you had life, as you had to change certain things. But Paul, uh, he, when he went, he went around preaching the gospel, he's like, no, this is not the gospel. It's just Jesus. You don't add anything to the gospel. It's just him. And so he took exception to this. And so he went up to Jerusalem to have this discussion. Now, as a side note, as a side note, this is very important. He didn't like, well, those guys are crazy. They're wrong. Obviously, they're wrong. Obviously, you don't add anything to Jesus. And he didn't like split off and start his own church. But he took the time to go and to have a conversation and say, we need to work this out. We're sending mixed messages. And that's exactly what happened in, uh, as you read on in verse 6, if you go down there. It says, the apostles, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And there had been much debate, which means there's lots of yelling, right? Like, there are people passionate telling their side. Peter stood up and said, then brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So all he's saying is like, man, you guys, man, our history is, you know, the prophecy and, and what we've known for a long time that God was going to include Gentiles. We knew for a long time that it was going to be uh, not by might, not um, but by his power and something new is going to happen. We knew this. That's what he was saying. And then in verse eight, here's a big phrase coming. If you have your own Bible, I would suggest that you underline this. If you have your phone, just you know, like double click it and then highlight it. Here's the, this is an important phrase. It says, and God who knows the heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows the heart and that you don't? Yeah. Because I don't know your heart. I just know your behavior. I don't know your heart. I just know who you vote for. I don't know your heart. I just know how your kids behave. I don't know your heart. I just know you smell like cigarettes. I don't know your heart. I just know you have some habits and things that I don't really like. I don't know your heart. But I, we sometimes think that we do know your heart, but, but Peter says, God who knows the heart, who's the only one who knows the heart, these non-recycling lawbreakers who vote differently than me, who act differently than me. 
God bore witness to them and accepted them. And he says, gave the Holy Spirit just like us. In verse nine, he says, and God made no distinction between them and us. God made no distinction between them. That's a good, those are some good words to get out of your vocabulary. Them and us. Oh, they. Have you ever said that? They, them. God makes no distinction. Having cleansed their heart by faith, which you're like, man, he may have cleansed their heart, but they still got some nasty Gentile habits. He may have cleansed their heart, but he hasn't cleansed their behavior. They, they have, he's cleansed their heart, but they don't dress right. They don't act right. They are offensive. But let me ask you a question. If God cleanses the inside of a person, don't you think it's only a matter of time that he addresses the outside of them too? Paul thought that way in Philippians 1, 6. He says, I am sure of this. You can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. So he was saying, look, I'm sure of this. I know that God has done something new in you. I know that God has cleansed you. And actually, like there are some things on the outside of you that need to change, but I am sure of this. I'm sure that God will make that, well, God will complete that work. It may not happen now, it may not happen next week, but it'll happen at some point. Now, for some of us, that happens sooner uh, than others. It happens faster than others. Some of us have, you know, we've been given the grace to grow and, and to develop in, in certain ways. And, and that's something that God does. God, God grows, God gives us grace, God gives us faith. We're all responsible to. Um, respond to that faith. But then he says, Peter asked him a really pointed question, verse 10. He says, why are you then are you putting God to the test? If God began a good work and he's going to complete it, why are, you, why are you trying to be Holy Spirit in their life? Why are you trying to do the work that only God can do? Why are you trying to add something that God said was sufficient? That it's by grace that we are saved, not by our works. Then he says, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to, to bear. So here's what's going on. Peter's like, Bob, you know, you over there, you know, you, know, you, you, know, you I saw you at the temple last week and uh, why were, you, know, you were at the temple, you were making a sacrifice. That's because you sinned. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, you see, you sinned too. And, and Frank, you did the same thing. Yeah, you're right. You know, so we can't even keep the law, do we? No, we can't even keep the law. I mean, we can't keep it. We're Jewish, and we can't even keep it straight. I mean, how many steps can we take on the Sabbath? And like, I know we're not supposed to eat a pig, but what about a llama? Or like, I know we're not supposed to eat bacon, but what about turkey bacon? Can we eat turkey bacon? Is that a part of Like, we can't even keep this straight. Like, how in the world are we? Those of us inside the church can't get it right. How do we expect those outside of the church to get it right? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. And it was like a mic drop moment because verse 12 says this, and then all of the assembly fell silent. And it's, it's through an act of grace. It's not through our behavior. Behavior that is wrong, behavior that is offensive to God. But the great wonder of what God has done is he swallowed up all of our sin, past, present, and future. And it says, it uses language that he has hidden us in Christ. And so when the Father sees us, all he can see is Christ, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see, he doesn't see that if we trust in him. And then at some point, James stood up and, and made a concluding argument statement that's branded in my mind every time I preach a sermon, as we talk about community and anything that we do. It's so important. I want to make sure that we get all just in case you didn't open your Bible earlier when I asked you to, is it says, he says, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning 
to God. And what we say is necessary and unnecessary in how we do our preaching, our worship, our community. We should avoid doing anything that makes it difficult for Gentiles turning to God. We should not make it difficult for, for people who are not a part of a church to turn to Jesus Christ. I know right and wrong. I know Jesus wants to, us, us to obey. But bottom line, we should not make it difficult for those turning to Christ. We should make the door as wide as possible. So Paul said that, and, and, and you probably know from experience, that the gospel is offensive, right? It is in and of itself as offense. The cross is a stumbling block. You know, walk up to people, you know, here's the gospel. You are a sinner and you need Jesus. Oh, thank you very much. And people don't respond that way. It's an offensive thing to say, the gospel. So he's like, let's not put an offense before the offense. Like, let's just make it as wide as possible. Don't put anything in front of the gospel. Let people come to the gospel. I don't want to make it difficult for people who are really struggling by having a church, house being a community who puts up false fronts that everyone here is doing amazing when it's not true. We all have amazing marriages, amazing finances, amazing kids. We're all amazing, amazing, amazing. That, that puts up, that makes it difficult for those who are really struggling to come here. We don't want to make it difficult. So we need to be honest about that. There's only one person who's doing amazing, and that's Jesus. Right? Some of you are like, who is it? Who's that one person? It's Jesus. He did it. He does it. He's amazing. And we all fall short. We, all, we are all struggling. You know, we don't do marriages the way we should. We don't do parenting the way we should. We don't do, we don't do, we fall short. We are struggling. We need to grab a hold of Jesus. I don't want to make it difficult for those who want to meet with God, but feel an, an uninvited because of how they're greeted and welcomed in and how we do kids. They feel unsafe. They feel like we want people to feel genuinely, we want them to have a warmth of hospitality amongst us. We don't want to make it difficult for people who are nervous about leaving their kids back there for them to be nervous. We don't want to make it difficult for them. We don't want to make it, they're already freaked out about coming to church. I don't want them to feel ignored when they walk through the door. We don't want to make it hard for them. We want to make it easy for them. Don't let them be offended by us if they're going to be offended. Let them get to the cross first. And if they're offended by the cross and leave, well, that's God's problem. <laughs> Quite, you know, and, and, but our burden is not to add a burden to the burden. I don't want to make it difficult for people of color understanding that we are predominantly white and the gospel demands that we work extra hard being inclusive. Now, we're not all white, but understand, we have to, under, those of us who, who are white, we have to understand. We, gotta work, we need to work extra hard. We have to be extra careful. I don't want to make it difficult for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction who are turning to God by stigmatizing that sin or somehow treating it like it's worse than mine. I don't want to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans by mixing in secondary political positions with the gospel message. We are a church that wants to help all people, and I do mean all people, know God, and all people find family here at Jubilee Church. And my question for you is, do you want that? We want that corporately, but do you want that as an individual? Well, let me ask you a question, a difficult one. If you were the only Christian on earth, you were the only Christian on earth, and you were the relational gate for someone coming into the church. Let me ask you a question. Who's in and who's out? Who, by the way that you carry yourself relationally, who, who do you want? Who, who are the people that you include and exclude? And there's someone. We all exclude someone. And then who are the, but here's another question. Who are the people who may not want to be around you because of the way that you are? in terms of how you, what you make is important or not important. If you're a Democrat, 
could a Trump supporter be in your church? Could they relationally come through you? Or would that be too big of a barrier for you? If you're a Republican and you notice, you look over to your right at work and you see that they have a pro-choice sticker on their backpack, could they be a part of your church? Would you love them, accept them, keep your mouth shut, except to open up your mouth about who Jesus is and what he's done and have humility? Or, Or could you not do that? Maybe you can grit it, but let me ask you this question. What if they were to go to your social media page? Would they feel comfortable being around you by what you say and what you express allegiance toward? And you could just go down the list of of things. There, There may be other things besides politics. Three things. So that's, okay. Just, I just wanted to make you feel good. That's all. That's all I was trying to do. I'll check that one off the list. Three drifts we must avoid. Three drifts we must avoid as, as a community. See, every river has a current, so if you jump in a river, you're just going to go somewhere unless you do something, right? As a community, as a church, as a, we, we have, there's a drift that happened to every church, not just ours. They happen to every church that if we're not actively aware of, we will, we will go down. Three drifts. The first one, outsider-focused, insider-focused. This should be obvious. When, when, something is new, when you start something new, as new as a church, uh, we're, we're 22 years old, we're brand new. All, there's no insiders, they're all outsiders. So you start thinking about who's not a part of the church and who can be a part. But as you naturally progress, your attention, our attention naturally goes to the people who are part, not the people who are out part. Let me give you an example. This is obvious. Nobody ever calls to complain um, about my sermon who isn't a part of this church. People who don't hear my sermons don't complain about my sermons. People who don't go to our kids' ministry don't complain about our kids' ministry. People who don't go to your group complain about your group. People who go to your group complain about your group. People who go to our kids' ministry complain about that. People who are positively or negatively, it's not all bad, I'm just saying. like That's where you get feedback. You get feedback from those who are inside. And so when it's happening, especially as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, there's just more opportunity for feedback. And... It's just natural that, you know, I want a church to be a certain way. I like certain things. Um, you know, I generally like air conditioning, but if you don't, then that's your choice, but I, I prefer it. And, um, but what happens is we get our, our opinion together and we begin to naturally begin to build the church about what we want. Now, we want to be a church that cares for each other's needs. We want to bear each other's burdens. That's, that, that's certainly a part of the gospel. But what it, it happen if we're not careful is that the drift is toward what the insiders want, those who are already a part of the church. And then we can build a church that's based upon what those who are already a part want to go to, and we can actually ignore the people who are the outside. You, you get what I'm saying? Like it, it just, it's just a drift that happens, and we have to be aware of that. It's not, it's not bad to want the church to be a certain way, but that's a drift that l- will lead you down a path. Now, I'll just give you some examples. That there's a lot of good generational examples. Like when I started leading, so I'm 40, almost 44, September 4th, if you want to send me a card. The, the, uh, I turn, that, you know, I'm a part of Gen X, all right? And so I took over, and there was baby boomers. Any baby boomers in the house? There's some baby boomers. You got a few of them, okay. So, you, so one of my first things that I did is I took the, the plants off the stage. Remember, remember when plants used to be on the stage? I know you guys don't remember that. 
I was like, so I was like, we're Gen X, like we to reach Gen Xers, we don't want to see anything. We hate ourselves. We don't want to see anything living. Like we don't want to see anything doing well. Like we got to get rid of. We got to make it sterile. And so we got rid of. The, I said we got to get rid of the plants. And if you're like, oh, we really, they, I don't know, baby boomers really like plants on the stage for some reason. But what we did like, well, you see, Generation X is responsible for the trophy child. So we were like, man, we didn't get hugged enough and loved enough from our kids. So we're going to make our kids a center of attention. If they want something, we're going to get it. And so here's the thing. Back then, kids ministry was like, here's a block of wood and go play with the mold in the corner. Like it was just like, there was no attention. And so we're like, we've got, look, we are not going to reach generation X if our kids, we, we have to change. We got to make kids ministry. We're trying to reach people who think kids are the center of attention. So here's the model for, it's not the, 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 the line of success for kids' ministry is whatever young mom thinks. Whatever young mom thinks, that's what success is for us. So we brought, and then so like millennials came along, so we had to change that and give Dylan and Jordan others responsibility. And so they took it to another, it wasn't just about what the kids want, it's just millennials, it's all about them. And so just like convenience, and so like it's just, it's all, you know, so we just make the church all about, and then, but here's, I'm sorry, your day is over, right? Millennials, it's over. <laughs> You had your moment. It's time to look Generation X. Like we got to think about the, the Z. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry. Did I? That was that was a. It's not a slip to get it back to come to me. Generation Z. So we're just going to do church by Snapchat. Like we're just not even going to like. It's just all going to be through Snapchat. That's it's, that's what's coming. We have to be willing to go from an insider to an outsider. Folk. It's not my preference. But we all had to. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Once you become a part. You have to bite your tongue. You have to lay down your preferences. You have to understand that if we, if we just let the current take us, we will become insider focused. And here's the thing. It's not just about, oh, we have to reach people, not care about people. Here's what happened. You'll become the kind of church that you hate because the kind of church that you hate is the kind of church that excludes certain kinds of people. And if we focus in on ourselves, that will happen. It's a drift that will happen. So understand even your own desires and preferences to be fulfilled can be dangerous to that end. Secondly, that we, we shift from grace to law. And I don't mean theologically, but what happens, especially as a church gets bigger, is like, what's the policy for that? So, you know, in attendance today across our campuses, like 400, or excuse me, 800 people, there's upwards over 1,100 people that generally are part. Lots and lots of people. And so in part of good leadership is making things clear, right? That's a, that's a part of, you know, in that's not just me saying that, just all the leadership books. If you, want, if you want to lead well, you have to make things clear. And so the temptation, especially as we grow, is to make, is to make a lot of policies. Now, policies are great. They do add clarity, and they're helpful and important, and we have them, and we need to probably have more in others. But we have to use real discernment because you can have too much. Because, for example, like when Jesus was walking along, he comes across and he meets his tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. And he's like, hey, I want to engage with you. I want to go over to your house. And the disciples like, hold on a second. We've got a policy that says that we don't like tax collectors. And Jesus is like, I know about your policy. I want to have a conversation. Jesus didn't have many policies, but he had lots of conversations. Another time, he brought, caught, found this woman caught in adultery. You read about this in John 8. And the, and the religious guys, uh, they say, we have a policy that when someone commits adultery, they need to be stoned to death, which was totally true. That was their policy. He's like, hey, I know about your policy. I want to have a conversation. I want to engage the heart. See, when you have a policy, I don't even have to, I don't even have, I don't have to talk to you. I don't even have to know who you are. I just need to know, are you following my policy? And so as the church grows, 
we move from grace to law, it's not just being moral, like, you know, do you, are you morally a good person? But you can make other kinds of laws. This is the way that we are. We, we have certain policies about what we like and we don't like. And, and if you can behave this way, if you can talk this way, you can act this way. Now, what happens when you don't do that? You invite all kinds of people that make you feel uncomfortable. But if we, if we have to understand that if we get into this policy-making mode that we can shift from grace to law. So a law church, here's, they say, if you, can be, if you behave right and you believe what we believe, then you can be a part of us. In the grace church, we want to say this. We want to say, you can belong. You can be a part, meaning like you can be around us. You can be here in services. You can go to our groups. You can be a part. Now, to be a Christian, you do have to believe. And then let me just say, if, you, if you've been around for a year or so, and like you, we, I hope, I'm glad that you feel welcome, but I just want you to know that life starts when you, when you come to the place where you're like, I believe that I'm a terrible leader of my life and that I have sinned and I want to repent. I want to turn to Jesus. And when you do that, man, life happens. Eternal life begins and you have unlimited access to joy, peace, and righteousness and belief. So belief is really, really important. I'm not downgrading that, but I'm saying that even if you don't believe the way we believe, we just want you to know that you can belong, that, you, that you're loved by us and we care deeply for you. And so belong, believe, and then behavior comes last. So the third drift, and I'll say this one as we close, is from advancing to preserving. The the third drift that we have to be aware of so that we don't build up walls and unintentionally exclude other people is that the drift is from advancing to preserving. And those of you who've ever started a business know that in the beginning, you know, you'll risk everything because you don't have anything, right? So you're just, it's all a big risk and an adventure and and when you're young, you do things, you take risks that you don't take when you're older. Now, some of that is wisdom, right? So you, there is, you learn from your mistakes and there's wisdom gets applied to your life. But the other thing that happens is you, you, you don't want to take as much risk. You want to limit your risk because you want to preserve what you have. And as a church, we're not, we're not babies. I mean, I've been around for 22 years. We've got people, we've got uh, their staff, we have three properties. I mean, we've got balance sheet. We're like adults. Like, I mean, we got like, like you know, there's, and you can learn about those balance sheets on Friday night. Like, we, we have all that. We, and, 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 there's a, and there's a real temptation for us to begin to, like, want to preserve that. Hey, man, we got a good thing going. You know, like, man, why don't we just, let's maintain what we have. The problem is, is when you, when you want to preserve what you have, you naturally exclude other people. It just naturally happens. You start to build up walls because you need to protect what you have. But that's not the way Jesus was, was he? He didn't say, I've come to protect who I am. I came to give away who I am. I give, I give my life away. I've not come to be served. I've come to serve and give my life as a ransom. Because when you, when you, when you think about this and you think about, man, if we don't have policies and we don't have... You know, we don't think about the people inside and we, and we, and we don't like try to preserve what we have. Like, man, that's risky and people can take advantage of us and it makes us vulnerable. I'm like, yeah, it does. But that's the way Jesus taught us to live. See, he came, he left his comfort, his circle of comfort in heaven and he came to earth and he took on flesh, which means that he became vulnerable and he allowed us to kill him. That's how vulnerable he made himself so that you and I could have life in him. And by us, by we becoming vulnerable, it says in, he says that if, if a kernel of wheat, unless a kernel of wheat is willing to f- fall to the ground and die, 
it'll just be a seed. And great, you have one seed. But if it's willing to fall and die in the ground, it'll produce a harvest by making itself vulnerable. In John 10, Jesus said this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The, the hired hand, you know, when the wolf comes, he leaves. He cares nothing for the sheep. When, when, the, when the costs begin to outweigh the benefits, he leaves. But the good shepherd stays, makes himself vulnerable in front of the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep that are apart. He gives his life for the sheep who are not yet apart, it says. If you go on and read on that. And that's where you and I need to be. We need to be like the good sheep. Not the hired hand who's just around to win, you know, like as long as the bennies outweigh the cost, yeah, I'll participate. We'll be like the good shepherd who just takes our assets, our balance sheet, our staff, our building, and all that we are and say, we're going to make it vulnerable for those who are not yet a part so that they can be a part. And as we do that, as we allow the life of Jesus to flow through this, we'll get what we talked about earlier. We'll get, we'll get a church and we'll get a community and you'll have a life that's full of grace, full of truth. You won't have to choose anymore. You won't have to have this internal battle, but we can live out fully full of grace, full of truth. Let we stand.